Welcome to the Republican Professor. Today we have with us a very special guest once again, Dr. Vernon Grounds, PhD, former president of Denver Seminary. Also, longtime faculty member in the counseling department, founder of the counseling department at Denver Seminary, and professor in the philosophy department. Thanks for being here, Vernon. Vernon joins us once again through the words that he wrote before he died in Emotional Problems and the Gospel, published by Zondervan in 1976. What's wonderful about this is just how relevant it still is. And we start. Here's Vernon. In this age of anxiety, as W.H. Auden perceptively called our 20th century, what can be done to alleviate the viscera-tightening apprehensiveness which troubles so many people? Aside from the remedies and nostrums offered by well-intentioned secularists, there is, we have been asserting, a distinctively biblical prescription for tranquilizing confidence deep down beneath all the surface agitations of our experience. But for this prescription to work, some blockages to its effectiveness must be removed. Specifically, therefore, we need to clarify the biblical concepts of peace, sanctification, and God. Unbiblical thinking in these areas may prevent a believer from appropriating the antidote to anxiety that Christian faith offers. This is from the Bible and Anxiety, Part 3, which is Chapter 3. To start with, then, we must clarify the biblical concept of peace. Unless we do this, we may grow frustrated. We may silently accuse God of failure to keep his promises. We may be experiencing a life of unruffled serenity, a, a kind of rose garden without bugs and snakes and thorns, when, as a matter of fact, God nowhere in the Bible promises us that kind of uh experience we may be expecting that but we we can't we can't rely on that because it's not promised is what he's saying at least not before we enter the kingdom of heaven undeniably to be sure in philippians 4 7 god promises us an, ex, an experience of peace paul writes and the peace of god which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through christ jesus unquote Undeniably, again, in Isaiah 26.3, God promises us peace. Isaiah declares, quote, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee, unquote. Undeniably, once more, in John 14.27, God promises us peace. Jesus says to his bewildered, uptight disciples, quote, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid, unquote. 
God, therefore, undeniably promises us peace, a peace which passeth, uh, passes understanding, a perfect peace, a peace which is qualitatively different from anything that can be experienced on the secular level. Nevertheless, the peace which God promises us is not an unruffled serenity, a kind of rose garden without bugs and snakes and thorns. So perhaps our understanding of biblical peace suffers from serious distortion. Biblical peace, for one thing, is not a mood of passive indifference. No, biblical peace is an emotional state of deep-down certainty, which has as it one of its components a spirit of fierce concern. Biblical peace, for a second thing, is not a mood of spineless resignation. It is an emotional state of deep-down certainty, which has, as another of its components, a spirit of blazing rebellion against evils that are frustrating the love of God. Biblical peace, for a third thing, is not a mood of smug self-complacency. It is a deep-down emotional state of certainty, which has as one of its components a spirit of searching self-criticism as the disciple seeks to bring himself into closer and closer alignment with the example of Jesus Christ. Biblical peace, therefore, is compatible with a soul-searching heart-disturbing conscientiousness. The apostle who in Philippians 4-7 writes about a peace which passes all understanding also writes in chapter 2, verse 12 of the same letter, quote, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, unquote. Such a trembling and anxious conscientiousness is inseparable from a passionate zeal for the glory of God and the blessing of one's neighbors. The biblical concept of peace is strikingly brought out in a hymn which we often sing. Horatius, Horatio Spotford came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior under the ministry of D.L. Moody after the Civil War. A wealthy Chicago lawyer, he arranged for his wife and four daughters to sail across the Atlantic for a holiday in Europe, but en route, en route a storm arose and their ship went down. The only report which reached Mr. Spofford which, uh, with the news was that the vessel had been sunk. In anguish, he awaited further. It came in the form of a telegram signed by his wife. Saved alone, Annie. All his daughters had been drowned. Mr. Spofford boarded the first ship available and headed to Ireland where his wife had been taken by rescuers in emotional turmoil and yet 
in an attitude of dependence on wisdom and goodness of this heavenly father, he wrote these words. Quote, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, unquote. We must get something straight. This is Vernon again. The biblical promise of peace is not a promise of unruffled serenity. It is rather the promise that no matter what, no matter what happens deep down in our souls, there can be sustained sustaining confidence that God is in control, and in the end, he will make everything work out for good. Let William Alexander Percy's hymn complement then that of Horatio Spofford. Quote, they cast their nets in Galilee, just off the hills of Brown. Such happy, simple fisher folk before the Lord came down. Contented, peaceful fishermen, before they ever knew the peace of God that filled their hearts, brimful, and broke them, too. Young John, who trimmed the flapping sail, homeless in Patmos, died. Peter, who hauled the teeming net, head down, was crucified. The peace of God, it is no peace, but strife closed in sod. Yet, brothers, pray for one thing, the marvelous peace of God. A second thing we must do to help ourselves and our fellow believers appropriate and apply the resources of Christian faith in handling the problem of anxiety is to clarify the biblical concept of sanctification. For the Bible by no means teaches that, as we grow in grace, we will become more and more immune from attacks of anxiety. Emphatically not. What the Bible discloses, on the contrary, is that even the most mature and devout of God's servants have been attacked by fear and foreboding. Job was certainly a great saint whose godliness underwent purification in the furnace of intense affliction. Thus, Jehovah gives a high appraisal of that exemplary character. Mm -hmm. Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Job 1.8. But Job was not exempt from anxiety. Instead, he laments, quote, for the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. 
I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. Unquote. That's from Job 3.25 and 26. Elijah, too, was certainly a man of God, but he was not exempt from anxiety. 1 Kings 18 preserves the spine-tingling account of his heroic, single-handed battle against the priests of Baal. Yet immediately on the heels of this dramatic Mount Carmel victory, that hero, as recorded in chapter 19, turned into a coward and, threatened by Queen Jezebel, fled for his life. And out in the wilderness, wallowing in discouragement, he longed to die. Quote, he himself went away, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's, end quote. That's from 1 Kings 19.4. Peter was also a great saint, but he was not exempt from anxiety. One night on the sea, as we read in Matthew 14, he and other disciples saw Jesus walking toward their boat in the midst of the waves. What happened? Here's the quote. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was down, was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said, saith unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. That's from verses 26 through 32. Here's Vernon again. Paul, in addition, was certainly a great saint, a, a spirit-filled Christian if ever one has lived, yet he was not exempt from anxiety. Probably too few of us who are Christians have pondered sufficiently everything implied in 1 Corinthians 2-3. And we need to ponder all its implications because we are so often glibly assured that if we have faith, we will not be bothered by worry and tension. Listen to this, quote, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, unquote. Weakness, fear, trembling. Paul, of all people, confesses that he experienced such emotions. After pondering that text, we need to ponder 2 Corinthians 7.5, where that apostle again engages in confession. Quote, without were fightings, within were fears, unquote. These phrases, incidentally, have been incorporated into one of the best known of evangelistic hymns. Quote, just as I am, though tossed about, with many a conflict, many a doubt, Fightings and fears within, without. O Lamb of God, I come, I come, unquote. 
Our Lord Jesus was the flawless model of sainthood, the pattern of a perfect relationship with God, his Father. Yet he was not exempt from anxiety. If he was, what are we going to make, for example, of that puzzling text in Hebrew 5.7, which scholars struggle to explain away rather than explain? Quote, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, unquote. We may exegete this text however we deem legitimate, but it still declares that Jesus in the days of his flesh experienced fear. Or what are we going to do with that awe-inspiring passage in Matthew 26, verses 36 through 42? Here, if anywhere in the Bible, we need to take off our shoes, for here, if anywhere, is holy ground. Quote, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith, Unto the disciples, sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and, and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye not enter not into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, O oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Unquote. What are we to make of this passage? Shall we simply explain it away, or shall we admit that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane experienced fear? William Strawson, in his book, Jesus and the Future Life, struggles honestly to deal with the phenomenon of anxiety in our Lord's life as a man among men. One need not endorse his interpretation in whole or in part, but one ought, as a believer, reflect as objectively as possible on what Strawson reverently suggests. Well, we must consider an extremely important saying which occurs in the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. The words are addressed to Peter, James, and John, whom Jesus had taken away with him from the rest. Quote, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Remain here and watch, unquote, from Mark 14, 34 and parallels. The first part of this saying is an echo. This is William Str Vernon quoting William Strawson again. The first part of this saying is an echo. 
rather than a quotation, apparently based on Psalms 42, verses five, verse 5 and 43, verse 5. Quote, why are you cast down, O my soul? These two psalms both, both deal with the disquietude, or in modern terminology, depression of a man who normally enjoys fellowship with God. In the first instance, the depression is caused by a loss of the sense of God's presence. Quote, my soul's thirst for God, for the living God, unquote. Here's another quote. When I come and behold the face of God, when shall I come and behold the face of God, unquote. That's from Psalms 42, verse 2. This desolation is increased. This is William Strawson still. It's a long quote. This desolation is increased by the jibes of those who continually say unto him, quote, where is your God, unquote. In the second instance, it's more plain, plainly stated that it is man's enemies which cause him to go mourning. In both cases, the solution seems, uh, the solution to the difficulty is the same. Quote, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God, unquote. These quotes, these points are important because it may be assumed that such thoughts would be in our Lord's mind when he used this phrase from Psalms. The second part of the saying, quote, even unto death, also occurs in the Old Testament and in the Apocrypha. The most instructive Old Testament occurrence is Jonah 4.9. Jonah, fainting under the scorching heat of east wind, of the east wind asked that he might die and said, quote, it is better for me to die than to live, unquote. But God asked Jonah whether he does well to be angry for the gourd that he has withered, that has withered. Jonah replies, quote, I do well to be angry angry enough to die, unquote. Okay, that was all a quote from William Strawson. Now back to Vernon. Traditionally, though, how have scholars handled this very moving exclamation? How have they accounted for the anguish which our Lord frankly confesses to his disciples? Strawson tells us. The sorrow which Jesus feels, this is quote, sorrow, the quote, the sorrow that which Jesus feels caused, according to many commentators, by the shock of realizing that messiahship involves suffering, was so great as truly to endanger the life of Jesus at this point. It is agreeable with such an interpretation to add that the mystery of the sorrow is beyond our understanding. But we dimly conceive that it must have been connected with the weight of the world's sin. In other words, Christian thought usually asserts that this deadly grief of the Lord was not caused by fear of death or pain or shame, but by the great burden of hum human sin which he knew he had to carry. It is usually a part of this assertion to deny that Jesus was afraid of death. We may quote a verse from a hymn to illustrate this. Quote, this is a quote within a quote of a hymn. The awful sorrow of his face, the bowing of his frame, 
come not from torture or disgrace, his fears not cross or shame. Unquote. Back to Strawson. Quote. On the basis of this kind of exegesis, it is generally held that a Christian should have no fear of death, but rather face it with courage and fortitude shown by Christ. The difficulty which faces many Christians at this point is that, try as they will, they cannot avoid a sense of fear in the face of death. Sudden, sometimes this fear is admittedly due to lack of faith. But it has to be admitted that even in many whose faith is very firm, this fear persists and can indeed be the source of much distress, especially when it is assumed that fear of death must imply lack of faith in Christ, unquote. That was a whole quote from William Strawson again. Big quotes here in Emotional Problems in the Gospel. Here's Vernon again, page 37. It is against the background of this traditional view that Strawson proposes his own interpretation, which follows that of the distinguished New Testament scholar Oscar Coleman in his challenging study, Immortality of the Soul or Resurrection of the Dead. At the outset of that book, Coleman unequivocally states his understanding of the Gethsemane episode. Quote, Jesus is afraid, though not as a coward would be of the men who killed him, still less of the pain and grief which precede death. He is afraid in the face of death itself. Death for him is not something divine. It is something dreadful. He is afraid of death. Unquote. That was from Coleman. Strawson then summarizes Coleman's discussion of our Lord's reaction at the prospect of death. Now, let me, this is me now, okay? Vernon is, is giving you this background because he wants to give you a different perspective on how to interpret some of these passages because the distress that people feel in the face of death seems to be uh, partly there because they're worried, the Christian is worried that it implies a lack of faith on their part. When, in fact, Jesus himself was afraid of death. Now, Vernon is not necessarily saying this is correct. What he's doing is he's offering it for you to consider. And he does give something very substantial that you want to uh, pay attention to. That's coming up. Let's finish this chapter. Strawson then, this is Vernon, Strawson then summarizes Coleman's discussion of our Lord's reaction at the prospect of death. Quote, the meaning of Jesus trembling and being distressed is that, quote, Jesus is so thoroughly human that he shares the natural fear of death, unquote. Coleman rejects the view that the sorrow of Jesus endangers his life on the ground that at this time Jesus knew he was going to die. He therefore accepts the interpretation of Johann Weiss, quote, my affliction is so great that 
I am sinking under the weight of it, unquote. The sense is then, seems to be, quote, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful in the face of death, unquote. Death is certainly not regarded as a friend in this interpretation, but rather as an enemy. Coleman further asserts that in this interpretation is supported by Mark 15, 34, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Luke 12, 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and now I am constrained until it is accomplished. This is taken to refer to our Lord's distress, which will not be ended until his until death has been experienced. We have to notice that in all these references to the death of Jesus, whether it is prophesied, expected, or plotted, there is no emphasis on anything but physical death. To the disciples, as well as to the Jews, Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die in an ordinary, if brutal and tragic sense of the word. The implication of the saving significance of his death is a perfectly proper and necessary interpretation, but at the same time, it is physical death, plain human death that our Lord is facing. If this can be accepted, then we have to say that it was human, physical death from which Jesus recoiled in horror. This would also mean that the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, is the cry of one who faces the death we have to face. He does not so cry out because he is a coward but because he is a realist. Later, Christian thought rightly interpreted this as a sign of his sin-bearing. And this is a necessary implication, but in the first place, it was death, as we have to face it, as we have to face it, that caused Jesus such anguish. Unquote. That was all a quote from Strassen. You can see how long the quote was. This is Vernon again. Strassen does not overlook Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus is extorting his followers, quote, exhorting his followers, extorting, just made a Jesus a criminal. Yikes. Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus is exhorting his followers, quote, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell, unquote. But did Jesus personally fail to live up to his own exhortation? As he approached death, was he afraid? No, Strassen replies. Quote, this is not the meaning of the words of exhortation, for in them Jesus is counseling his disciples not to fear their persecutors and opponents, this advice to others, Jesus certainly applied to his own life, for he never showed the slightest sign of fear for the Jews and the Romans. There is, in fact, a great difference between being afraid of men and being afraid of death. Jesus in no way conflicted with his own teaching when he passed through anguish and fear as he approached the hour of death, unquote. That was Strassen. Here's Vernon again. Strassen then next proceeds to answer a formidable cri criticism of his interpretation. If Jesus really feared death, he was not unflinchingly courageous. Indeed, 
he suffers by comparison with Socrates, who, sentenced to drink the fatal hemlock, unemotionally talked with his friends and calmly assuaged their grief, never displaying the slightest tremor of fear. Thus, Strawson's interpretation seems to compromise our Lord's value as an example for us to follow. But this is his rejoinder. The truly brave man is the one who goes on, although he is afraid. Often the absence of fear indicates lack of true sense uh, sensitiveness. This is a quote, sorry. For, quote, the true brave man is the one who goes on, although he is afraid. Often the absence of fear indicates lack of true sensitiveness. The callous, hard-hearted, hard unfeeling man may indeed feel less of any emotion, but that makes him neither brave nor exemplary. We must, of course, be careful not to look for an interpretation of this saying, which will merely confirm us in our stereotyped view of Jesus. We must try to follow the evidence, whether it confirms our opinion or not. Yet the conclusion of any particular interpretation must somehow accord with the general picture of our Lord. This point of sensitivity to fear may help us at this juncture. Was Jesus of such a sensitive character that we can well think of him as being specially aware of the horrors of death? The answer can only be, certainly he was. We cannot imagine him facing the horror of death without a shudder. If, indeed, Death is ultimate, the last enemy of God. We have then no need to say it was because of the weight of the world's sin that Jesus was so much in agony in Gethsemane. It was because death is a horrible thing when faced realistically. This, in fact, is the witness of many doctors and others who often see men and women die, when after death there often appears to be a great serenity discernible in the features, many good and noble people die in agony, and some in terror. If this is the right interpretation of this saying of Jesus, we must accept it, whatever the consequences for our faith. But fortunately, those consequences need not at all be disastrous, need not be at all disastrous. It does not take away the ground of Christian hope if we accept that Jesus was afraid of death. This is still Strawson, uh, Vernon quoting Strawson. Got a little bit more to go on this quote. It does not take away the ground of Christian hope if we accept that Jesus was afraid of death. Rather, it places that hope on a sure and utterly realistic ground. It turns the eyes of the Christian to face this unavoidable fact of death and his natural fear of it. It does not say you ought not to be afraid, and if you are, you're, you show unbelief. Instead, it says it is perfectly natural for you to be afraid. For Jesus, the perfect man, was also afraid. But in the hour of death facing its horror, you will know that your Lord knows exactly what this is and will help you. 
with sympathy. But far more than sympathy, with victory. For the Christian view of death is not complete when we look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It must also see Jesus in the Garden of the Empty Tomb. See him as the conqueror of death. His victory is all the more valuable to us because it is a victory over the death we have to face from that which he shrank, as we know we may. This is, unquote, this is Vernon again. We're almost done. Let me be emphatic. The Strassen-Coleman interpretation may not do full justice to the biblical data. I'm not necessarily endorsing it. All I'm saying is that here we have a courageous attempt to plumb the depths of the Gethsemane experience. If this interpretation is correct, however, I, for one, think it makes Jesus more appealingly human and more effective as a helpful encouragement to struggling believers. It tends to purge from our concept of the God-man some lingering taint of docetism, that first century heresy which denied that the incarnated Savior was really and fully and truly human. Motivated by a commendable concern to protect our Savior's deity, docetism compromised his humanity and robbed him of human emotions. In any case, we can help our fellow believers if we emphasize that sanctification or progressive growth in Christ likeness does not mean exemption from anxiety. This has been a reading from Emotional Problems in the Gospel by Vernon Grounds, former president and chancellor of Denver Seminary, founder of the counseling program there, longtime professor in the philosophy department as well, like for example, when I arrived as a philosophy student in the 90s. He was on the faculty in the catalog at that time. I'm happy if you're connecting with this material, feel free to send an email to therepublicanprofessor at substack.com if you'd like to materially support this podcast. And we do appreciate the support and there are people supporting the podcast. Praise God. If you'd like to be one of those that helps us keep going, again, send it an email. Um, hit me up on social media. You can send me a message on Instagram or Facebook, but pr I prefer an email if you can to the Republican professor at substack.com and subscribe to the Substack. You can subscribe for free for now. All right. Have a good day.